Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. But understanding that our, our contemporary doctrine and the things we teach today uh, are really founded in, in the experiences of those that, that went before us and uh, grounded in the lessons of the past. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Patrick Handum discussing the meeting of the three commanders. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by Discover Concord, the town where our American history began. Plan to visit and explore historic Concord, Massachusetts. For more information, visit discoverconcordma.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today, our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor, Patrick Hannum, and he'll be discussing the meeting of the three commanders in Virginia. One of the things we often look, overlook, or maybe don't think enough about, is the diplomacy involved in a wartime alliance. We think about instant communication today, we think about making plans. Man, I love to do that. But we don't often think about how slow things moved in the 18th century. How such an important event like the French and American alliance came together relatively slowly by today's standards. Now imagine that being accomplished in a private conversation amongst three people. Imagine trying to remember a meeting that you had maybe a few weeks ago. Now imagine being a historian 250 years later trying to pick out small details about that same meeting. It's a daunting task. It's one of the reasons I love this article by, by Patrick Hannum, because he's able to do that. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Patrick Hannum. Patrick Hannum, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you. I'm pleased to be here. Um, just kind of give you an update on uh, my, my personal status here. Um, I recently retired from the federal service after 45 years in the uh, Department of Defense. I uh, spent 29 years as a United States Marine Corps assault amphibian vehicle officer and uh, 16 years, the last 16 years, as a professor at the uh, Joint Forces Staff College National Defense University, where we uh, focused on Phase two joint professional military education. Our audience was primarily um, field grade officers in the grades of 04 through 06, or uh, major uh, lieutenant commander through uh, colonel captain, as uh, directed in the Goldwater-Nichols Act of 1986. Since then, I've just been uh, reading, researching, and, and writing a bit on the American Revolution. What first drew your interest into this topic? Well, I'm a student of the Yorktown campaign, and of course, in my last job, we were concerned with military planning and execution at the joint and multinational level, really at the campaigning level. And uh, some of my research dealt with 
comparing the contemporary elements of, of doctrine uh, to the practices uh, during the revolution. And, of course, one of those issues is command and control. And specifically in, in the Yorktown campaign, in, in this particular topic, it looks at multinational command and control, meaning more than one nation, and um, studying the, the principles, really, that we outline in contemporary doctrine they're actually reflected in uh, in these historical examples, and specifically this example of the, the meeting of the three commanders. For our listeners, uh, what was going on during the war when this meeting took place? Well, again, this is 1781. You know, this is part of the Yorktown campaign, um, deemed, deemed by, by some scholars to be the campaign that actually won America. You know the the last major campaign of the American Revolution, at least on this continent, and um, Washington understood that he needed to have an offensive campaign in order to win. He couldn't win on on the defense, but in order for that to happen, he really needed three things, and he outlines that in his diary on the first of May of. 1781. And what's quite interesting about Washington is he keeps that diary, and he doesn't always keep a diary throughout his, his life, but in this particular case, he started a, a new segment of his diary on the 1st of May of, of 1781. And he, he concluded that as the Yorktown campaign concluded in early November. So we have kind of a nice little uh, record along with his official correspondence of the campaign. And what Washington stated on 1 May in his diary was that I need the support of the French here. I need, uh, in order to undertake an offensive operation, I need the French Navy to compete with the British Navy. I need land forces to reinforce my land forces. And, of course, I need some money. And, and the French have all three of these things, and we have to bring them together this year. Could you tell us why the location for this meeting was chosen? So, um, as the campaign unfolds, you know the, the the larger you know campaign, the Yorktown campaign. Um, you know Washington and Rochambeau are situated with their land forces in the Hudson River Valley, north of New York, uh, posturing for some sort of an offense uh, based on whatever opportunities they see. Uh, Washington and Rochambeau had met previously in uh, in May, um, May 21st and 22nd, at Weathersfield, Connecticut. And we'll call that a commander's conference. And there they outlined two general courses of action. Uh, the first of those was, you know, to attack New York, you know, the, the primary um, location of British forces in North America, but the British had had years to, to reinforce that position, and and you needed a navy in order to strike it effectively, and Washington found that out in, in 1776, that you really can't hold New York w- without a substantial navy, and he had none. So as they were waiting on a decision from de Grasse with the French fleet in the Caribbean, uh, they postured around New York. Um, that May, May 22nd meeting, they also decided that an operation in the South would be feasible as well. But they had to find the right conditions in order for that to take place. 
Well, as it unfolds, the British start to reinforce in, uh, in Virginia. Uh, Cornwallis moves his forces there in May, but that was preceded by um, General Clinton, Henry Clinton, in New York, sending two, two, two large elements to Virginia. The first was uh, under command of Benedict Arnold, and uh, that force arrived really the end of December of, of 1780. It was probably slightly over 2,000 strong. Um, that was reinforced about two months later, uh, three months later, at the end of uh, March, when um, General Phillips was sent with another 2,200 troops. So you've got pro close to 4,000 troops now assembled in Virginia, and then Cornwallis moves his force, roughly 1,500 or so, uh, up, up to join them. Now you've got, with this reinforcements, you've got uh, uh, over 8,000 British forces that uh, congregate in, in Virginia. And that's a very um, opportune force that uh, Washington and Rochambeau look at, but they still need that, that French Navy. Well, they, they finally get a letter from de Grasse. It arrives in their headquarters along the Hudson River there on the 14th of August. The letter was written in, in late July. And uh, de Grasse reveals that he is moving his force, all of his fleet, to the Chesapeake Bay. At that point, um, Washington and Rochambeau posture and start moving their forces across the Hudson River. And ultimately down here to the Chesapeake Bay region and ultimately Yorktown. They use uh, Williamsburg as an assembly area. So in the interim, the Battle of the Capes has been fought uh, by the British Navy and the French Navy. It's essentially a tactical draw, but the, the British fleet is damaged to the point where they go back to New York to repair those damages before they can come back. At that point, the Chesapeake Bay is in the hands of the French fleet. And, of course, the location for the meeting that we're, we're talking about, the meeting of the three commanders, is in what's called the Lynn Haven Anchorage, which is right at the mouth of the Lynn Haven River, about the two miles from uh, Cape Henry, right there at the point on the south side of the Chesapeake Bay where the city of Virginia Beach is today. So um, the, the location is really determined by where de Grasse established his primary anchorage for his ships. What did Washington hope to achieve at this meeting? So um, the, the way I would look at this is it's more of a, a confirmation of the, the planning that's already taken place to make sure that the land component, uh, which is represented by both Washington and, and Rochambeau, both the American and, and the French forces, um, are, are synchronized, really, and the thinking is synchronized with those naval forces. And that is really the, the, the purpose of the meeting. Now, what's kind of interesting is um, because the, the principals didn't speak each other's languages, um, Washington was in the habit, when working with the French, of basically taking a, a sheet of paper and splitting it in half. And on one side of that paper, he would write his questions. And then on the other side of the piece of paper, uh, the French would 
respond so that they now had a good solid record of what each wanted to accomplish and you know the, the specific answers to those questions so that's the the case with um, with this meeting uh, Washington had outlined six major questions that he uh, that he wanted to pose to the uh, to the French to uh, de Grasse as the uh, the naval component commander and uh, they're, they're very kind of high-level questions, if you will. They're not really tactical questions or operational questions, but they were questions to, that would help him frame uh, what he was going to be able to accomplish with this upcoming siege that he anticipated. Let's talk a little bit about the French commanders. What do they hope to achieve? Well, I think the, um, the, the, the questions uh, that, that Washington posed uh, reveal a, a lot about what you know, the French commanders were, were thinking. Um, of course, Washington and Rochambeau were, were traveling together. They had planned the campaign together. They had moved together all the way down from you know the Hudson River Valley, had stopped at Mount Vernon on the way, uh, basically did some of the planning, more detailed planning there at Mount Vernon, and then proceeded on to Williamsburg where they met uh, General Lafayette, who was the, the senior uh, commander here in, in Virginia until uh, both Washington and Rochambeau showed up. So they had already done a lot of coordinating between themselves, but what they hadn't done was that coordination with the with the French fleet. So these six questions kind of outline uh, what uh, really the the big picture items that they wanted they both wanted to answer. And, and the first one is probably the one of the more important ones: is how long will De Grasse remain in the Chesapeake? And of course, De Grasse had commitments with his Spanish allies to return to the West Indies for operations there. And so the answer to that question was, I'd like to leave by the 15th of October, but I'll hang around until the 1st of November if we need to. The, the, the second question was, um, what about the reinforcements that you brought? Um, the uh, troops that he brought from the, the, he transported up from the Caribbean, the, the land forces were under a commander uh, St. Simone, and it was 3,000 to 3,200 men. And Washington's question was, are those troops going to have to go back? And the answer was, yes, they are. They must return with the fleet. And again, that was because of commitments with the, the, the Spanish allies there in the, in the West Indies. Um, question number three was, um, well, would you be willing to send some ships north of Yorktown in the, in the York River uh, in order to assist us with uh, securing the you know passage across the river and uh, and preventing the British from using uh, any of the river upstream, and, and the answer was no. I don't think I'll do that because he didn't really want to run the risk of sending those uh, sailing ships through that relatively narrow channel that the British had uh, guns on both sides. Uh, fixed against uh, any targets that might try to transit the river. So uh, Washington had hoped to, to get those, but uh, the answer was no, we're, we're not going to do that. And it was probably very advisable on, on de Grasse's part not, not to try to run those gun batteries. Um, his, his fourth question was, um, will you provide any forces from the fleet for land ops uh, because the British are holding some of the terrain on the north side of, of Yorktown on the uh, 
the Middle Peninsula there on, in what's now Gloucester County. Uh, they had in, in, the, in the community of Gloucester, they had occupied that really in, in order to forage over there and supply their forces and uh, their livestock with fodder. Uh, Washington wanted to cut that off, and he did get a commitment uh, from de Grasse to uh, take some of his troops off of the ships and actually sent him some field-grade officers to form a task force over there led by the French and supported by American militia to try to block the uh, the British in. So we did get an affirmative uh, answer from that. Uh, Washington wanted to do follow-on operations. That was his fifth question. He said, will you detach vessels of the fleet to block the, the ports of either Wilmington, North Carolina, and or Charleston, South Carolina? And to that, uh, de Grasse answered in the negative, I'm not going to, to do that. Uh, he didn't want to split his fleet up, number one. And Washington continued to follow up during the siege with uh, with de Grasse and ask if he would reconsider and do some follow-on operations against either Wilmington or Charleston. And he said no, he was obligated to take his fleet back to the to the West Indies to support the operations with, with, the, with the Spanish allies there. And then the last question that he asked was in reference to, uh, can you provide any cannon or any powder? And so, um, you know, the ships that the, the Grasse had in his fleet would be carrying, you know, large cannon, much larger than the type of cannon that you would use in a field army you know, upwards of, of 24 pounds, 18 and 24 pounders on a lot of those uh, uh, large warships. And so uh, they needed those longer-range guns for um, the, the purposes of the siege so they could outrange the British guns. Now, uh, to that, um, de Grasse responded that I can provide some cannon and a small amount of powder. So uh, when you look at all the six questions that were answered, uh, Washington essentially probably received the answers that he figured he would receive from de Grasse, and de Grasse probably figured he'd provided as much support as he possibly can. So uh, all in all, when uh, the, the meeting was uh, summarized by Washington's aide, aide-de-camp was uh, Jonathan Trumbull, um, who was with them at the meeting, um, he described it as uh, things were proposed and, quote, soon dispatched to great satisfaction, end quote. And the meeting apparently went so well that they took a tour of the ship afterwards, and uh, of that event, um, Trumbull responded, it looked like the world in miniature, so it was probably his first opportunity to actually see a, a functioning warship of that size. And the Ville de Paris on which the, the meeting took place, the, the flagship, was a, was a reportedly a 90-gun ship. So it was a fairly large vessel. And uh, probably for those folks that had not been on a large warship, a very, very impressive uh, piece of machinery. What did they talk about at this meeting? So I think this was really a, a final coordination meeting, if you could you could call it that, to um, finalize those details for you know the the siege itself. 
Um, one of the interesting things that you find is that DeGrasse understood how important you know this this event was, um, and and he said you know we this is going to set conditions uh, not only here in North America but on the European continent as well. So the, the, all the folks were 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 fully aware of of the significance of what was about to occur. And that was if the siege went well, uh, they could defeat a significant portion of the British Army in North America. And you know, if you go back and, and look at the context of this, you know, the, the British did not have a sufficiently large army to subdue you know the North American continent and the Patriots here in, in North America. You know, they had to go higher um, auxiliaries. You know, off the European continent, principally the the German uh, auxiliary forces that we we call um, Hessians, but really were from six different German states, um, in order to actually man their army at the beginning of the American Revolution, and that was a very expensive proposition. And long wars are are not necessarily popular, as we all know. And this had become a very long war, and there was a lot of political opposition to continuing the war inside the British government, although the king and his principal ministers were, were very supportive of continuing the war. There was other, were other factions in the, in the parliament that were not as uh, happy to, to continue this war. So um, the, the conditions are really understood kind of globally that whatever was going to happen at Yorktown was going to have fairly significant implications on, on the war you know, beyond this theater. So uh, I think that probably is the most comprehensive answer that you can give on a, on a question like that. In what ways did this set the agenda for the Franco-American alliance? Well, it's interesting because, you know, I, I try to uh, stay attuned to, you know, kind of local events here and, and tie them into the, the broader um, global issues that are going on at the time. And um, fortunately, the city of Virginia Beach has established a historic preservation commission. They, they did so uh, in 2008, actually. And um, this particular meeting came to my attention um, because of local actions. Uh, a local uh, researcher uh, received a grant from the Preservation Commission in order to do this research and actually uh, have a Virginia Highway Road Marker sign uh, created and installed there uh, near where the actual anchorage was along what's today Shore Drive on, on the north side of Virginia Beach. So that was brought to my attention, and the fact that um, local historians are, in fact, interested in these things and, and pre preserving history um, combined with the, the important messages that, that are really kind of enduring in nature over time uh, really drew my attention to, to this. And then I take it back to my experiences in, in teaching at the joint and multinational level for field grade officers. And many of the things that we've laid down in doctrine today are really depicted um, by these events by these meetings and the decision that these commanders made, how they respected each other and treated each other. 
so uh, that human side of, of warfare and how commanders deal with situations is also, I think, an important factor to, to consider. Patrick, we always end with the same question. How does this article help us to understand the revolutionary era better? Again, I'm, I'm probably a bit different than, than most historians, be, because for me it's not necessarily always about the history, but it's about the relevance for us today and the teaching points that we can bring for, um, in my case, when I was in a classroom with the, the, younger, the younger officers. Uh, it's, it's so what? You know, wh- what about the history? But understanding that our, our contemporary doctrine and the things we teach today uh, are really founded in, in the experiences of those that, that went before us and uh, grounded in the lessons of the past. So we can see many of these contemporary concepts that we outline uh, really depicted in the actions of uh, Washington and Rochambeau as the two key land component commanders, uh, Admiral de Grasse and de Barras as the, the key um, maritime commanders. Uh, we can see you know, things like multinational operations, how you set up your command and control for that, um, the, the idea of commander's intent, uh, understanding what a commander chooses to do and uh, how they convey that to, to their subordinates and, and their multinational peers. Um, really, logistics, because a lot of what Washington was interested in was material support, manpower support, personnel support, uh, how, how that's worked out at the, uh, the, the the joint you know between two services and the multinational level you know between uh, different nations so uh, these are all you know considerations one of the the more important things that i think comes out of this is you know this whole meeting um, this whole meeting event took 5 days out of washington and Rochambeau's schedule in order for them to transit from uh, the vicinity of College Creek uh, near Williamsburg uh, down the James River you know, to the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay where the anchorage was located, and then returning, they ran into a strong headwind, and that return trip took three days. So the, the two commanders were really absent from their commands for five days during a very critical period when they were assembling the forces, um, offloading the, the, the logistics off of the ships, and then uh, you know, posturing for the siege. And, and that, what that tells us is things went very well. Washington and Rochambeau had really good subordinate commanders because they didn't have to be there all the time directly supervising them. Uh, Benjamin Lincoln was uh, Washington's uh, deputy, and he met Washington when he came back and briefed him that things were progressing very well in terms of preparing for the siege. So I think this this meeting and the circumstances under which it took place and the timing tell us a great deal about not only Washington and Rochambeau, uh, but the subordinate commanders that those two officers had underneath them. Patrick Hannum, thanks again. Thank you very much. 
appreciate the time. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.